0: hey this is carrie from wrap your head around silks this is the expecting aerialist podcast hope you guys are doing well today happy valentine's day week before we get started go to the show notes there's a link there the flagship course Wrap Your Head Around Silks, is actually open for registration this week, just for a couple days. So go ahead and check the link there. And uh, so your opportunity to register right now, it's mostly for beginner to ed- intermediate students. My entire curriculum on one online platform, it is super easy to access 24-7. So I'd love for you to check that out. And today I am so excited to have Kate Law with us. She is currently in Salt Lake City and she's got this 20-year circus career and an even longer dance career. Such a rich and textured journey that she's had through movement and starting her career over in different cities throughout the last 20 years. And she's a mama of two. She struggled with prolapse and she's hypermobile. So she's got a couple... Problems arising from that in her births, as well as some awesome contortiony moves because she is hypermobile. But I had so much fun talking to her. This is our interview. Kate, I actually know very little about you. Yeah. And I kind of prefer it that way because it allows me to come into these interviews with some curiosity and no planning, which. I love because it's more spontaneous. So if you would just um, tell us a little about yourself, where you're from, kind of something a little bit about your family, just introduce yourself and then we'll go from there.
1: I'm Kate Law Hofflick. I tend to just go by Kate Law for my teaching and performing. Um, I grew up in Salt Lake City dancing and... Although I didn't study dance, I didn't major in dance in college. I danced with the Tacoma City Ballet and ran kind of the college dance club. Um, And back then, you know, in 2000 is when I graduated from high school. um, There really, you couldn't find circus in the U.S. except for maybe in San Francisco and Vermont and some special summer camps So I didn't really, um, have exposure to it, but I always really dreamed of it. And actually my senior year of college, I created a dance, um, for our dance club performance that was an aerial dance with ropes. And I got some people from the climbing team to help me (laughs) rig it. And, um, you know, looking back on it, it was very novice, obviously, but it was just kind of something that was always in my dreams. So, after I moved to San Francisco to pursue dance professionally when I graduated from college, I found these aerial dance companies, Flyaway Productions and Project Bandaloop. And it was just this total lightning bolt moment where I was like, oh my gosh, my dreams really exist and people are making those happen. So, I basically stocked those companies. I took all their workshops. I hired their directors for private lessons and eventually formed a mentorship relationship with Joe Kreider in Flyaway Productions. She's the founder and director of Flyaway Productions. And finally got to start performing harness-based aerial dance and vertical dance on walls and just different dances with invented apparatus. And from there, I just was hooked. I didn't want to go back to dancing on the ground. I started taking low-flying trapeze, which is also a kind of a Bay Area thing that Terry Sendgraf really helped to develop. And I started going to Montreal for training trips, and I founded an aerial dance company with Elena Stroud called Bow and Sparrow and we made shows and went on teaching and performance tours. Wow, um, Kate,
0: this was in like
1: 2005 or
0: something? Yep, yeah, 2005. Wow. So you've been doing this now for for basically 20 some years yeah yeah I have <laughs> wow that's so amazing i I've mean, did it for a long time <laughs> I've I found Ariel in 2007 and you're right there was a lot less, less than there yeah. is now there's so much
1: now did you still do ballet on the floor did you completely stop I switched over to modern dance um and when I danced with the Tacoma City Ballet, I mostly did contemporary ballet with them. Okay, I was not really a classic ballerina. Um, so I still studied modern dance, and I actually performed with some modern dance companies in San Francisco. Also, some smaller ones, not any really thing with big name recognition. Um, um, Kate, but I just I'm loved, Ariel. Oh my God! Yeah. So i I went to Overland College. Oh, cool. So, you know, the ODC story? Well, kind of. I was going to ask you if you knew of them or worked with them. I never worked with ODC company, but that's where I, the ODC studios, um, that's where that was basically my home in San Francisco. That's where I was at least five mornings a week taking uh, the morning class um, and I loved it there.
0: Yeah, Oberlin Dance Company in San Francisco has been has been a mainstay for a long time. I, I yeah. have not heard of them recently, but I was trained at Oberlin in their modern apartment and Oberlin Modern is like modern, modern, modern. <laughs> yeah,
1: totally. And that's totally the vein that I got into as well. Oh, okay.
0: Awesome. I, I love it. I mean, I, yeah. I got there as a freshman. I had taken like tap ballet and jazz, right? At my local studio. And they were doing contact improv. And I was like, what is
1: this? (laughs) I loved contact improv, um, and release technique were the two styles that I really kind of focused in on for my movement quality.
0: Oh my God. You know, that's actually a pretty hard transition to go from ballet to that type of modern. That's, that's like a transition for the body.
1: I did modern growing up okay. also. Okay. And I studied with RDT in Salt Lake City Repertory Dance Theater. Okay. They're a pretty old repertory well established repertory company here and I did like creative expression in addition to ballet. So I I did a lot of ballet and I actually most of my scholarships for college were dance scholarships. I won this prize called the Utah Sterling Scholar where I was like the one recipient in the dance category. And then for some reason I was like, no, I need to be serious. So I got my degree in international political economy and French. (laughs) Okay. Why do I
0: feel like we are sisters in arms? I also did the same thing. Well, I wasn't going to go to Oberlin and have my parents spend all that money and get a dance degree. So <laughs> I took all the dance classes and, I, and I, could have, I could have double majored, but I didn't bother and I got a political science degree.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so did you work in political science ever? I actually thought I was going to do that
0: because I ended up moving to LA and, pers- and ended up in a 20-year commercial dance career ended up no, I wouldn't yeah. I wouldn't say that was a plan. I just planned to try, right? Cuz you just yeah. don't know what's going to happen. Um but yeah, I moved to DC right after college. I got this job working for a political consultant and then had like a aha moment, quit the job and moved out here.
1: Yeah, that's kind of my senior year of college, I got this fellowship uh to work at an international affairs management firm in Seattle. And it just I it was I just was not happy. And I similarly had this aha moment where I was like, what am I doing? Yeah. This is not the recipe for happiness for me. So I also decided not to take like full-time employment from them when the fellowship ended and went to NYU for the summer to do the Tish dance intensive, summer long dance intensive as a way to like just really dive back into dance. And then from there moved to San Francisco to start pursuing dance.
0: Oh my God. I'm geeking out on your dance resume right now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, most of us are, are aerialists, but there's so many dancers who are aerialists. So no, I geek out on that because that's my, that's, you know, I only started aerial when I was 30.
1: Yeah. So I, let's see, I guess I was lucky. I was
0: 23. Right. You were like, when I moved here to LA, I was 23 and I had, I mean, actually it worked out for me because training as an aerialist, it's very time consuming. Yeah. And so is dancing. Totally. So a lot of the students that I have now who are trying to do both at the same time really struggle because they struggle with consistency in class because you know, they're like, they booked a job and then, you know, suddenly they're gone for three months and they have to start back to where they started it's, it's tough. So I kind of, I kind of appreciate that I had a little bit of a separation there, but yeah, I'm totally, Kate, I'm geeking out and I want to like go for coffee, even though we don't live in the same place. I was like, what? I would love that. <laughs> like, let's go for coffee and talk, dance all afternoon. Okay. So this is the Expecting Aerialist podcast. So
1: yes. So I'll fast forward yeah. from San Francisco and just really like training Ariel. I then started training other apparatus. Like my brother at the time was at ENC, Ecole Nationale de Cirque. Oh, in Montreal. lovely. I, I follow their Instagram. He calls me up and is like, there's this pretty new apparatus called sear wheel and no one's doing it on the west coast and i think you should buy one and i'll teach you how to do it at at christmas break (laughs) and i was like okay (laughs) so i i had no idea what it was he just bought one straight from daniel sear so i learned that from him and then wait sear wheel
0: is based sear is based on the name is from a guy
1: yeah, Daniel Sear. There were actually Rue Sears, like Simple Wheels. They're also called um, before he really popularized it and created a more in-depth vocabulary. But yeah, Daniel Sear was the performer. And don't quote me on this, but I think he performed for Cirque El was, Okay. And he really dove in and created it as a more full art form.
0: Okay. You're also giving me circus history class right now. Too. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's awesome. And your brother is randomly a circus person. Is that how you.
1: So we both kind of discovered circus at the same time. Okay. Got it. When he moved in with me in San Francisco, but he's four years younger than I am. And so he, he, just had that leg up of discovering it before he'd gone to college. Oh, okay. So he got my parents to foot the bill for him to go to ENC. Ah. But at that point I was already an adult and fully supporting myself. And so I just couldn't swing it to go to a full-time circus school like that at that point. Lucky duck. I know. I'm still jealous. (laughs) And you know, it makes a difference. He's, traveled the world. Now he lives in Prague. Um, and having that like leg up of really dedicated training, it really has benefited his career.
0: Yeah. But you have a political science degree. Is that the difference?
1: Exactly. Yes.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to uh, interrupt you.
1: No, no worries. So um, I started SEER while I was still in San Francisco, started doing corporate work and just performing um, in theatrical shows with my own company and other companies. And then I met my next door neighbor who I ended up marrying um, and he came from like a totally different world. He's an engineer and in the Coast Guard and we never would have met if we hadn't been next door neighbors. (laughs) Um, And after we got married, he wanted to get his MBA. So we relocated to Boston Love it. And in Boston, um, I ended up just loving Boston and loving the artistic community there. And the uh, circus schools there that I worked for were excellent as a coach. And I performed with the Boston Circus Guild. And it was, we moved to Boston when I was five months pregnant. So it was a little bit hard to transition while pregnant mm-hmm. because. I couldn't just show up to a community where no one knew anything about me um, and be like, Hey, I'm, I know what I'm doing. Trust me. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
0: Let me train with you.
1: Yeah. But trust me. um, So it took a while for me to recover before I really felt comfortable kind of entering that scene in Boston. But once I did, it was extremely welcoming and I really enjoyed it there. I had my second kid also while in Boston. And when he was five months old, I decided to audition for NECA for ProTrack to just really reinvest myself in my art form and carve out time apart from that um, because I felt like motherhood was kind of swallowing me. Mm. So I took kind of different track than most students that go to NECA. I was the first person to complete pro track that had kids <laughs> and I was still breastfeeding while I was in pro track. Oh my goodness. What is the time, time uh, commitment for
0: that? Uh,
1: well, when, when I was in it, it was not as intensive a schedule as it is now. So it was, Three days a week from 8.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. of classes. Wow. And then two days a week of independent training. So I basically just, it worked out well because it was all the same hours as my kids' daycare and school. So I would just train five days a week. And then um, I taught a couple evening classes as well while I was there. Did you, what year was this? (laughs) That was 2015 to 2016. So I was also kind of different because I already had about 10 years of professional performance experience under my belt, mm-hmm. <laughs> compared to most of the other students um, that were much younger than me. I was 34 at the time. Okay. And um, but it was fabulous. Like I I picked up a new, totally new discipline: Chinese pole, Ooh. which I. Love. And I really dove deep into trapeze and worked with Amy Hancock at NECA, okay. who I also really loved. Oh my goodness, I love this story. So, yeah, then after NECA, we decided to move. We love Vermont and considered staying there, but um, for work stuff, my husband needed to move back to the West Coast. So we, um, moved to Portland okay. and in Portland, I took a job as the director of a pre-professional adult training company, a year long program. And I ran that for AWOL Dance Collective. The program was called, is called Flyco. Okay. It still exists. Um, and I did that for five years. Oh, wow. While also performing in Portland and being a mom and helping my husband start a construction company. <laughs> and uh, now we've just moved to Salt Lake about six months ago, back back to Salt Lake City. So we, I came full circle.
0: Wow. And Salt Lake is, again, where you're from?
1: Yes, it's where I grew up. So my parents are here. And it's the first time that we've had family around since I had kids. I love and it. And I'm kind of like wow, this is a game changer. Why didn't I do this sooner? But it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. There's kind of a weird like eco thing for me with coming home where it feels like some sort of throwing in the towel, but I just had to get over that.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe if you were, if home was like a little tiny city in the middle of nowhere, but Salt Salt Lake is pretty great, right?
1: It is, and You know, back when I lived in San Francisco, there was just one tiny aerial studio that had just started up that we would teach workshops at when we, I toured through here with Bow and Sparrow a number of times. Um, But now there are tons of studios and some pretty big programs for circus um, and quite a few performance things happening that I'm still plugging into. I haven't lived here in 20 years, so I'm really out of the loop and having to basically start from scratch with my circus network here. But um, there's a lot going on here and I'm looking forward to connecting with it more. Well, Salt Lake City,
0: if you're listening, Kate Law is there. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And uh, you want to plug into her because, oh my goodness, this, this, this path... You know, I just had a, I don't know if you know the name, Natasha Wang. I don't think so. She's in the, she's a pole artist. She's in the pole world. Um, Okay. We were having the conversation of kind of getting older in our art. Do you feel, do you feel that way because you've been in it so long? Or do you feel very young in it?
1: You know, there's these two forces that are always warring with aging and art, where, like, I've had this sense of urgency that my career is like, has this expiration date. I've had that feeling since I was 23. Really? Of, like, I'm too old. Like, I'm behind the curve on everybody else. There's, you know, this is going to end someday. I've got to like move as far and fast as I can in the field while I can still do it. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, I think these last five years as like 40 was kind of approaching that sense of urgency is really left. And I just feel like, Oh, I, this is more sustainable than I thought I'm actually stronger now than I've ever been. I love it. More flexible now than I've ever been. So it feels like there's this richness that comes with age, yeah. but I also my knees hurt and <laughs> yes. they creak when I walk up the stairs and You know, I fractured my spine a few years ago. Oh, wow. I have to be really mindful of that when I'm doing contortion. And so sometimes I feel old and I look at the younger people that are coming up and are so good and have had access to the art form since they were children. And I'm like, why am I even still trying to do this? And then other times I'm like, wow, these people are so green. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they need a mentor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did that create
0: anxiety for you when you were younger? That yeah, because it can kind of go two ways. It can. I mean, obviously, it creates a fire underneath.
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely anxiety producing. Um, it just feeds into imposter syndrome. I think, mm, okay, that's really in interesting, I also really struggled with. And I think that a lot of, I don't know, almost any self reflecting person probably struggles with imposter syndrome. I feel like women more than men. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to my mentor at NECA, Sandra Foisy. She's an amazing coach and Chinese pole artist, and just an amazing person. And she's, this is a roundabout story, but she's good friends with Gypsy Snyder, one of the founding members of Les Sept Dois de la Man, Seven Fingers. Mm. And we were, I was telling Sandra about just feeling this imposter syndrome. And she was saying, you know, I was talking to my friend Gypsy about this the other day. And she was saying that she feels like an imposter. And she's about to open a show on Broadway. Like this was right before seven fingers opened a a resident show in new york wow (laughs) and she's sandra is saying it never really goes away you just have to be calm within those feelings and move forward dedicated to your art and that's really all that you can do wow but yeah i think it does affect women more than men
0: I just heard a story and I'm going to not give specifics because it's a real life gig. But one of my students was, uh, booked this job as a, as a lead in, a in a circus project and she trained for it. It was going to be her first aerial gig. She's a dancer, been dancing for, you know, forever. She gets there and her partner, the man who was hired for the job, had told casting that he had aerial experience and dance experience and everything. And he was hired and he had none of them.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: None. Or at least very, very little. And you could tell, right. It's not like he was faking it well. And so her whole track had to change. She wasn't able to do aerial on that track at all.
1: Oh my gosh. All, All of her choreography, dumbed down everything. The exact same thing happened to a friend of mine on a cruise contract.
0: Oh God! Like the balls that it would take, yeah, to lie,
1: yeah, and and then show up with no skill set. Also, what are the casting directors thinking to not check up on that? Money.
0: You know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, the yeah, lead of your show. Kind of <laughs> it's like the amount of money that goes into these productions is so much. Like, why would you? Why wouldn't you check that out? Because it's so important. I don't know. So she was so uh, yeah. she was devastated because it was gonna yeah. be her first aerial contract, turned like dumbed down, you know, step touch <sighs> dancing. Oh my god. It's so disappointing. And yeah. I know that I would just be horrified to ever do something I would never, you know, like that would be yeah. my worst nightmare to show up and not have the skill set to do the job that I was given.
1: Yeah, that can't
0: feel good. I mean apparently some people have no problem with it but that impo- that like that with this person whoever you know from your that cruise contract I just you know not a lot of women I know are going that direction they they're usually overqualified and and feel underqualified
1: totally yeah. yeah occasionally I run across someone who's very good at selling themselves mm-hmm and then when I look at their skill set, I'm like, wow, you have, <laughs> uh, you lack self-assessment. <laughs> <laughs> or self-awareness or, one, yeah. or one, of three, yeah. one of the two. But I feel like that's rare. I haven't found as many women where that's the case. Right. Um,
0: Kate, I have a question for you. So you have a very long movement background story and journey. And you've also had children. Tell me what your movement quality tell me how it's changed over the years and how it's evolved and what and if there was any life events that really made
1: like a the chapters separated and how it changed for you yeah. having kids definitely had a huge impact on my body. I have pretty substantial hypermobility um and so my pregnancies were both really hard um I had just my pelvis felt like fully articulated joints like I would walk and I could feel my pubic bone shearing my SI joint wow was like super wiggly so especially in my first pregnancy. I could not stretch. I had to stop exercising almost entirely. Just just walking or like getting up and down from a chair was really painful for me. And it was also a surprise pregnancy. It wasn't planned. And um, I had wanted to wait longer before having kids. So grappling with both not being able to work out, which is something that I know I need for happiness. Like my body needs those endorphins or I feel down. Um, And then combined with like coming to terms with like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be a mother way sooner than I intended. And this feeling of like my career's over, my life is over. I just moved. I don't know anybody. I'm isolated. So I was, I was really in a deep depression, (laughs) during the end of my pregnancy and you know then I suffered postpartum and I feel like that was kind of one of my first experiences with depression the reflection and just the trial I guess if you've ever been through a really hard time and had to to find within yourself that strength to pull out of it and Remotivate and come to terms with the way that your body is different. Um, I think that really just changed my perspective. And when I did start training again, I had this self confidence that, you know, I looked, I guess it's like I looked at pictures of the way that my body was pre baby when I was, you know, six months postpartum and still too wiggly in the pelvis to really do impact exercise or anything like that. And I was just like, wow, I, I used to think I was fat. I used to have such negative feelings about myself and I was thin and toned and smoking hot. Like, what was my problem? And I just vowed to myself then to always wear shorts never feel embarrassed about wearing a midriff again and just I came to accept and love my body probably for the first time ever and I think that that was a real gift like that confidence that I gained like during those moments of realization um, while like coming back to having a healthy body again in that first, postpartum recovery time that was really really powerful for me um I think that it just enhanced my performance quality because you can you can look at a performer and you can tell if they want you to see them versus like after having um you know paneled a lot of auditions I've I've learned that I can see people who move like they're apologizing. Do you know what I mean? Oh my God. I want to go to coffee with you now. Oh my
0: God. It's so <laughs> geeking out on what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. H- hiding on
1: stage, which is exactly right. exactly. And I feel like when you don't have love for your own body, there's an element of apology in the way that you move that even if people who watch you aren't quite sure you can't put your finger on it all the time, but I feel like that totally dissolved and I was really able to just take up as much space as I possibly could. Like now I'm constantly telling my students like take up every atom of space that you can on stage. I want you to expand to the very last atom on the very tip of your finger. Like be as big as possible and never apologize for being there.
0: Oh my God, Kate. I I love it. And I've been, I really think this, um, when you say apologizing on stage, I always used to characterize that as hiding on stage. That was just the word I used.
1: Yeah. And it's very
0: complicated actually. Yeah. It's a very complex idea. And I always tell my students too, like you, you actually can't hide on stage, but it's, it's more complicated than that. People can see you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you let
1: them. Right, exactly. And I just found performance after that, like, kind of radical acceptance of my own body to be so much more satisfying. Um, I had this calmness where I could just look out at the audience and actually, like, look into people's eyes and have a true energetic exchange. And that energetic exchange, that like getting fed by the audience, that was always there, but it was so much more profound when I just became so comfortable. I don't know. I I feel like it might be hard for anybody that hasn't had a room full of people watch something come out your vagina to like really have that (laughs) level of (laughs) self-acceptance.
0: You know, Kate, I'm still working on this for myself because I had some DR and my pelvis is really like super tilted forward mm-hmm. and I'm still really tight in my hip flexors because she's two and I st- I still can't get my posture to kind of correct itself. You know, I stretch, yeah. but it's just, you know, cause I'm also sitting half the day at my computer and to be honest, I hate my posture right now. It makes me look like I have a mom pooch that's bigger than it is. Yeah. It makes me feel like I'm gained weight when I'm not. It's just kind of like things have looked a little different. And I, Yeah. I deal with a certain level of body dysmorphia, like you were saying. And I think I have the same amount as probably
1: every longtime dancer on the planet. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. And I totally, I totally still have moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, my stomach looks poochy or I feel fat. I still have those moments of like extreme self-criticism that's probably unwarranted. And you know, you have a strong and capable body and so do I. And Probably like a muggle, if a muggle, a person who isn't active, heard either of us complaining, they would be like, what is wrong with you? But yeah, I think it comes from just staring at yourself in the mirror for your entire life in a leotard. Yeah. And then with everyone else in the room, you know, comparing
0: yourself to the other people in the room, I deal with it all the time because I'm just like, not, not necessarily that it's such a big deal. But again, I'll look at pictures of myself all throughout my life and, and my, how I view it now versus I know how I thought about myself at then is so different. Yeah. And I recognize that and I'm like, oh my God, this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. You know, I look at a picture of myself, my headshots and stuff when I was first in LA and I was, oh my God, I was this tiny little bird, mm-hmm. tiny little arms. I didn't do arrow yet. Yeah. No idea. And I, I want, well, I don't really need to fix it in myself so much, but I just don't want my daughter to have that.
1: Yeah. I feel, I feel that. I don't want your daughter to have it either. (laughs) I don't want any of the girls to. No,
0: no. And I really don't know. I mean, it's not just the mirror. It's social media. It's everything now. I think for me, it was the mirror because social media wasn't really there before. Yeah. But totally. but now, there are other diff- other ways of of getting that yeah. nastiness in your in your brain, Kate, I wanted to ask you about this movement quality again because I'm just now I'm like just asking for my own. <laughs> like yeah. my audience is like, Carrie, can we talk about Ariel? no actually actually i don't I don't think so. I think they're actually long for the ride <laughs> um the way I've heard feedback, et cetera. So for the students out there who are still trying to figure out how to figure out their own movement style, like mm-hmm. them, not their teacher. What would you, do you have any advice for those people and how to find find that for themselves? Because I, I talk about that a lot in class and um, people struggle with it. And I struggle with finding different ways to explain it and teach it because for everybody, I think it's different.
1: Yeah, so... My number one tool is improv mm. for that. Like and this is harder for aerialists that don't have a background in dance. Um, there's some vulnerability in improv when you when it's not like part of your normal toolbox. But improving on the floor just as a warm-up, is a great way, even if you're just alone in your bedroom or in your kitchen while something's simmering on the stove, just turn on music that you connect with that makes you want to move and move. And it doesn't have to be pretty. It just has to feel interesting or feel good. And you don't need to watch it or film it. You just need to feel it and start recognizing movement pathways and movement qualities that come naturally to your body that feel good to you. And you can do the same thing in the air. And sometimes I like to take an improv from the floor and then try to translate it onto an apparatus. It's a really good way to come up with different movement qualities on apparatus. Um, it, Cause obviously it's more challenging to have differentiation and movement quality when you're in the air and your arms or legs have to be holding you onto the apparatus. You don't have as many options with your limbs. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's a really good exercise to take something from the ground where you can move really freely with your limbs and translate it to an apparatus.
0: I love that. I love that. And when it comes to your own personal style
1: over time, can you characterize it? Is there a way to do that? I've always been really flexible and have enjoyed like sustained movement that really dives into the end range of my mobility. Um, and I really love contraction. So like think Martha Graham, Martha Graham was a technique that I studied growing up that I just really connected with. Um, so I like to find expansive movement that, that then kind of convulsively contracts back into a smaller package and then re-expands.
0: Kate, um, kind of taking a left turn. You said you fractured your spine.
1: Yeah, so I've had lots of injuries. Um, okay, that's I like also, that's like
0: one that like I passed over because you were talking I didn't want to interrupt you. I was like, how can you just drop that mic right there?
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> I know it well, it's not like it was just a stress fracture, but it was a traumatic injury that happened while I was on stage actually. Wow um, and this happened. Four years ago now. Only four years ago? Only four years ago. Yeah. Um, while I was basing my partner on my shoulders in a two high. And I we did this thing in our act where I would slowly slide down into the splits while basing her on my shoulders in a two high. Okay. And then we just had this freak accident where the mats ripped in half And one foot was on one mat and my back foot was on another mat. So my feet just went out like, like I was wearing roller skates, but you know, it's so drilled into us to protect our flyer that I kept her on my shoulders. I kept balanced. I didn't drop her. And so I slammed down into the splits with her full weight. She weighs the same as me on my shoulders. Um, so my spine just like, she's, she said from above it almost made her throw up cause she suddenly just saw my stomach like shoot forward and then come back at back. So what I got was wow. called traumatic spondylolisthesis. So it's a stress fracture that happened to my L5, um, basically from my spine just going into extension so fast and hard so it also like all of the little knobbles, uh the facets on my spine um in my whole lumbar spine were bruised because they basically clacked together
0: (laughs) and this is also because you're hypermobile
1: Right. That didn't help.
0: Right. It's kind of
1: perfect storm. That didn't help. I also pulled my psoas and dislocated my sacrum. Dislocated your sacrum. So you already had some SI joint issues. Right. So I guess we could back up and kind of like since this is about expecting areas. Yeah, you
0: know what? Go into that. Cause that's
1: that's I don't even know what I'm gonna
0: name this this episode because we are all over the board. (laughs) <laughs> everywhere but it's okay i it's so it's so fascinating please please
1: explain so yeah with my first pregnancy i had symphysis pubis syndrome where my pubic bone became a mobile joint more mobile than most pregnancies experience so what that meant is when i walked i could feel each half of my pubic bone shearing like moving forward and back And then I had SI joint hypermobility. And after the birth, I also had really intense diastasis rectus, like sounds like what you had also. Um, And I gained a lot of weight, which didn't help with the recovery. Um, I just kept eating like I was a professional athlete through my pregnancy. And then I had to totally stop exercising. So that was also a challenge. Um, being a little heavier made it harder for my pelvis to re-stabilize and, you know, I didn't get PT after that. I had some chiropractic work and just kind of went back to my normal circus regime slowly. Um, my second pregnancy, I was able to keep training for, um, you know, I slowly pared down over time, but I taught up until a few weeks before I delivered. Um, I still had symphysis pubis syndrome and I still had a hypermobile sacrum, but I learned my lessons and I was a lot more of a a lot better advocate for myself. So I got PT while I was still pregnant. Um, So I felt a lot more stable. Um, But then after my second, I got my all clear to go back to training. I was really motivated to get back to performing. So I I had a performance already scheduled for 14 weeks postpartum. And I went back to the gym at six weeks postpartum. And... I basically just hit it too hard. At the time, I didn't really know very much about hypermobility, I just knew that I was. Um, So I think I would have done things differently if I'd known more, but I went home from training and I was in the shower and I was washing between my legs and I felt something. And my first thought was that I was crowning. I thought like, is a baby coming out of me right now? And just had this like total kind of out of body. I just totally disconnected from my body. Like maybe it was almost (laughs) a mental break because I was just like, what is happening? Like, could there have been another baby in there that they didn't know about? I just freaked out. I went downstairs, called my doctor while I was waiting to hear back from the doctor. I, you know, got on Dr. Google And realized that what I I was having a prolapse. Oh man! Um, But it was so it's called a stage three pelvic floor pelvic vault prolapse. Wow! So I had an anterior and posterior, and it was outside of my body enough that I honestly thought that a head was coming out.
0: Oh my god! So you had like a really so I had a really
1: Case extreme prolapse. Um,
0: and how long after your second baby was this?
1: It was six weeks after it was right after I went back to training.
0: And so it didn't show itself until
1: after you started training, exactly. Wow. Exactly. So, what happened was, and talking to my, I got a really amazing women's health specialist PT. and. I wish that was the standard of care for aerialists for all women. I yes. wish that was a standard yes. of care for women in the United States, because it is the standard of care in most European countries. You just, you get, you know, your prenatal care and then part of your postpartum care is pelvic floor physical therapy. Right. And Now this is like one of my passions also is pelvic floor health. And I talk to all of my students about it, whether or not they're ever planning to have children because it impacts your health and wellness as you age, not just as a performer, but just as a human. Yeah. Uh, It's it's super important and nobody talks about it. I didn't even know what a prolapse was when it happened to me. My doctor knew I was hypermobile and didn't, think to tell me that I had a higher chance of prolapsing because of hypermobility, which you do. Mm. Um, What I found online was just that, Oh, you prolapse if you're overweight and don't eat enough fiber and have had three or more children. And most people don't do anything about it until they're sure that they're done having kids. And then they just have it surgically corrected. And I was just like, wow, wow. I've only had two kids. I'm not overweight. I'm super fit and strong. I'm a vegetarian, so I'm definitely eating enough fiber. (laughs) So like I just didn't fit into any of the standard risk categories for prolapse. And my PT explained that actually hypermobility is a huge factor for prolapse. And, um, that, Basically, the vaginal walls were already super weak and, you know, like a kind of like a ripped rubber band. Um, When you're hypermobile, your connective tissue is like, oh, yay, we like stretching. So when you're giving birth, your vaginal walls, which are basically connective tissue are stretching and they're like, oh, we know how to stretch. We love stretching. And they stretch too fast and snap. Like if you pulled a rubber band and broke it. Oh my God. So like when I first went into physical therapy, I had zero um, reaction. Like I couldn't engage any of the muscles there at all because the connective tissue was so broken. Um, And then on top of that, I had really severe diastasis rectus. So I had it from my diaphragm to my pubic bone, and it was three fingers wide. Wow. It was pretty gnarly. Um, And that's also something that happens more to hypermobile people. You're more at risk for dr. If you have hypermobility. I mean, it makes sense. Kate, how many sessions
0: or weeks or whatever did it take for you to start firing your firing
1: when you did a Kegel
0: or any of those those exercises?
1: It took about six weeks and I was going in person. So it was quite intense. I didn't want to pursue a surgical route. So me with my newborn would go in twice a week in person for one hour sessions And, um, you know, it's super intimate. It's like a mix between seeing your OB and seeing a PT. So yeah, I, I just finished, I just finished uh, public floor PT. So, okay, cool. So like she would do a combination of internal massage and trigger point therapy. And then we would also do biometric feedback. Did you do any of that? Yes. Yes. The The little
0: electrodes on right around my butthole. Yep.
1: Oh, so mine was an inserted device. Ah, okay. And I would play a video game with right. my Right, right. This is, uh, <laughs> this is uh,
0: yeah, I heard all about that. It's on Amazon, that little toy. Yeah, well, yeah. so
1: back in my day, this was only seven years ago, um, you had to like have a doctor to work with using these biometric feedback devices, but yeah, no, you can get them on Amazon and there's apps and smaller devices that you can do at home. But I had to go and like plug into her like special computer program. And it was really cutting edge at the time.
0: Right. So you did, you did that PT and it took six weeks to really start feeling like you had any type of response.
1: Yep. And I was also super dedicated. I did it. I did this little like twenty minute routine five times a day, seven days a week. Oh my god, you so were so I would dedicated!
0: Just set this
1: alarm on my phone, and no matter what I was doing, if I was breastfeeding, whatever, I would have to lay down on the floor and elevate my hips because I had such lack of response in my muscles that I needed gravity to help me. Wow! Um, and yeah, so it took about six weeks of that, and I actually did it for a year. And then I went to NECA. <laughs> oh my God. So let me ask you
0: for both pregnancies, how long of a break did you take? Did you just take up to six weeks and then you went back to training?
1: No, for my first pregnancy, I was in such a dark hole that it took me about six months to get back into training at all. Mm-hmm. Like I was doing very gentle yoga, but my first son was colicky oh. and it was just really hard. I didn't sleep more than three hours combined in a row until he was 10 months old. <laughs> so that was, that was rough.
0: Yeah. I, mine was not colicky, but basically the fir- the fourth trimester of my, you know, like that first yeah. three months, I consider mm-hmm. that the hardest period of my entire life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would say this I feel that that was the same for me. It was it was rough. And my husband was like a full-time grad student and running his own company. So like he was pretty checked out. I mean, I love him, but like he was doing his best. We were both struggling. Mm-hmm. Um So I didn't get back to training until six months postpartum for my first. And then I didn't perform until about 14 months postpartum with my first. With my second, I, you know, got back to training and then had a hard stop. And then I took six weeks to do just physical therapy. And then I got a a pessary which if any listeners aren't familiar with a pessary, it's kind of like a diaphragm. It's an, an, like a silicone device that you can insert into your vaginal canal that is a ring with um, like a trampoline in the middle of it. And it basically held my prolapse inside so that I could go back to teaching Wow. And and gentle training. So I would wear that during the day and then sleep at night with my hips elevated to try to get, um, you know, gravity to help the prolapse go back the way I wanted it to. Um, I'm just imagining like a diva cup without the cup. Exactly. It's like a flat diva
0: cup. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So Your son is now seven, your your youngest.
1: Yeah, my youngest is seven. I'm
0: asking for myself too. (laughs) (laughs) You say that you're stronger now and more flexible now than you've ever been.
1: When did you start
0: feeling yourself
1: plus, plus, plus better? Um, I would say at about 14 months to two years postpartum, like while I was at NECA, and I, I feel... Actually, that it wasn't the conditioning that I did at NECA that helped me to feel so strong. It was my pelvic floor PT, which, um, you know, at NECA, I ended up in a jump rope act, (laughs) which was a terrible idea because I had avoided impact because of the prolapse for like a year. Oh, my God. Prolapse plus jump rope equals like the worst idea in the world. Exactly. So I had a small like relapse of my prolapse and had to go back into pelvic floor PT in person while I was in NECA when my son was, I think he was about 18 months old by that point. So um, through those like two periods of time where I was really getting a lot of education about my pelvic floor and core muscles from the PT perspective. So those are the muscles that stabilize your spine, not just like your abs. Um, I feel like it was through that work and that knowledge that I gained that that's what made me stronger. I don't think that I had ever done a Kegel properly before this, um, PT experience. And I had never like Really consciously been able to engage my transverse abdominis muscles. I had often had low back pain just from a lifetime of dance and gymnastics without a lot of back strengthening. And so just really focusing on all of those tiny muscles in my, that support my spine um, to stabilize my sacrum. I think it was that work and then continuing to do that work that has made me stronger. And that's why for my students who have never had a pregnancy and may plan to never have one, I still think it's super important for them to train pelvic floor fitness. Like it really helps in contortion and hand balancing. And it just helps with your control and stabilization of your spine, whether you're hypermobile or not. Um, So, yeah, I think that it's been about the last five and a half years that I've just been feeling so much more strong and like a more of a master of my own body. Oh,
0: I'm looking forward to that. I, I also, well... At six weeks out, I started training and I just went really hard, of course, yep, that's what because yeah, most of you're us try to excited,
1: chomping at the bit.
0: I ended up doing all the things with all the wrong things. So I mm-hmm. overtrained my SOAS, overtrained my Q all all the things. And my pelvic floor was not participating at all. And then just finished, you know, she's she's over two, and I just finished my pelvic floor PT now. And now, you know, I basically regressed all of my inversions and I'm coming back to it and starting to feel better. But I am very much looking forward to feeling like one, like one uh, body when I'm going up there. Because right now it feels a little bit disconnected. Um, Kate... I am so glad that we fought through scheduling Stefus to do this because Yeah, me too. <laughs> you are just I feel like we are Yes Bean, go ahead. I've said this many times. I feel like the women that I talk to on this podcast who I've never met, I have more in common with you guys than the actual people in my life. Yeah,
1: <laughs> totally.
0: Not not to say that I can Yes Bean, hold on. Okay. Okay. My daughter is getting a little bit, it's about an hour that she gives me. (laughs) Yeah. She's
1: been so good.
0: She's been really, really good. She's had my phone this whole time. Um, Not that I don't connect with my friends and my family and everybody else, but we have such similar life journeys that it just speaks to me so much. So I love talking to you. I would love to have you come back on at some point and we can talk about other things. Um, but I'm so, thank you so much for
1: being here. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I would, I would love to hear more. I would love to interview you and hear more about <laughs> your story. Well,
0: my story, I feel like my story for the listeners comes out like a slow drip over time, you know, cause I, I'll have to listen to more episodes. You know, but there, are, but but certainly, there's a lot that I have not unearthed about my college experience, and you know, because mostly I focus on the aerial and the motherhood because that's the that's the main topic of the of the podcast. But I just have, you know, this long movement background as well, and it's such a journey, and each part of the journey is just so interesting if you really like, kind of like drill down into one part of that. Thank you so much to Kate Law for joining me today. Oh my God, I just want to like hang out and talk, dance and aerial. That's actually how I feel about most of my guests and probably some of you listeners if I ever met you in person. So yeah, so go to the show notes if you're interested in seeing what my course is all about. You have a limited time and I have a 15 minute inversion booster bonus that is available only for the next three days. So check out the show notes for that. Thank you so much to Asa Watkins for post production. And if you would honor me with a five-star rating and a review anywhere you get your podcasts, it really helps other aerialists find me more organically. And you can always find me on Instagram at carrywe. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you so much. Have a wonderful week. This is the Expecting Aerials Podcast.